No, I mean, architecture is political. We gotta, we gotta add that stuff. Indeed. We're tearing down communities to build multifamily and you have to understand we are creating displacement. You're displacing black and brown folks and they don't come back. Half of this podcast would be dedicated to the history of Tyler House my journey and my discoveries and hey i'm gonna solve this housing problem hey guys what's up my name is melissa daniels this is the architecturalist political podcast where black and brown folks talk about architecture i hope you enjoyed this podcast and be part of my storytelling this week's episode i talked to michelle barrett as well as chris dimrick again originally we were going to do this interview but no that's not true. First, I asked Chris to do the interview and then Chris was like, hey, well, you know, can we do it with me and Michelle? I was like, sure, but I still want to interview you too. So both Chris and Michelle, as well as other members of this group, started EDGE, Emergent Grounds in Design Education. This group was originally organized back in June 2020 as an alumni collective in solidarity slash new grounds for design education. And then they renamed it to Emergent Grounds in Design Education in August of 2020. And we get into like the whole meaning and reasoning and what drove them into the name change. So Michelle is from Maryland. I made a distinction between Maryland and Maryland, if you know, you know, and the difference in growing up in a diverse area versus the transition of going to college where you're a minority, like you're like three people in the class. And I've experienced that. And I experienced it that in DC, no less. Not so much when I went to Boston, but definitely in DC. I I experienced it, which is kind of weird growing up here and finding out that there's pockets where you can definitely be the minority and feel that way. And, And even though you have your support system, even though you have your village, that isolation is real. And you take it more seriously because you're A, paying a lot of money for it, and B, this is your education, this is your career, this is your livelihood. You're you're sacrificing a lot, at least for me anyway, pursuing something, getting that degree. Another thing that I want to touch upon is desperate and just being in that environment again and how ruthless. And Chris mentioned this also in his solo episode. If you haven't listened to it, please do. Um, About just how cruel architecture is. When I talked to Decolonize Architecture, a group from the University of Bath, Muslim women in architecture, like every single student or recent grad I've talked to have all said how cruel architecture is and how it just is joining a a gang. It's like a gang initiation. They break you down and only thing is they just didn't build you back up. <laughs> just you left scarred. They there was no building back up. It's not the army, right? They just 
tear you down. And at the end, what what's the reward? What's the satisfaction? Why did I sacrifice all this? You get to a point where you you question all that and you're like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And you end up leaving the field or, you know, other things, pursuing other things, doing other things. I don't want to keep you guys up. So here you go. Hi, guys. Hello. I'm just going to have you introduce yourselves. I'm going to start with Chris first and then Michelle. Hello again. My name is Chris Demrick and I use he, him pronouns and I'm here in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm real excited for this conversation. Hello. My name is Michelle Barrett. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm nervous for this conversation, but also very excited. (laughs) Why are you nervous? I don't know. You don't get nervous when, I mean, I think that there is a sense of familiarity already because I have listened to the podcast and I'm also from Maryland, DC area. So, I mean, it's not as nervous as some other conversations but I'm always nervous when I meet someone new I feel like I've known you and I just looked you up 20 minutes ago <laughs> in, in the email Chris said you was from Hagerstown I was like, Hagerstown and then like, I was oh well, she's not from Merlin she's from <laughs> Maryland then I saw the high school you went to I was out like, yeah 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 my parents moved there after or when I started Speaking of school, how was your experience in uh, Montgomery County? You know, I, looking back at it, really appreciated my education, or not my education, but I appreciated being in Montgomery County during those formative years. I went to undergrad at Kent State in Ohio, and it was very white there and Montgomery County is more diverse than you realize when you leave you realize oh I actually had it good (laughs) so yeah I really did enjoy Montgomery County what made you go to Kent huh that's a good question I think so similar to a lot of young black kids I played sports I played soccer and I thought I was going to go to college for soccer. I I was close too. And Kent was one of those schools that I had, or my coach had connections with. So when that opportunity didn't (laughs) make it, I guess I just stuck with the schools and the ones that actually had decent architecture programs were the ones that I had to, to choose. I always knew that I wanted to get out of Maryland So that was kind of a given, but I didn't know anything about Ohio and I didn't realize that students or other students actually visited schools. I didn't know that was a thing, which sounds silly right now, but yeah, I don't think I visited any of the schools that I uh, applied to. So it was a little shocking once I got there. But again, looking back, I will say the education that I got there, I, I appreciate it. It prepared me. I wanted to make money and so I actually would took like engineering classes in high school because you know everyone says be an engineer they make money I realized quickly building bridges and doing the calculations for 
loads and whatnot, but that was not what I wanted to do. So my counselor at the time, of course, I was taking art classes, really enjoyed drawing, painting, just creating things with my hands. And so my counselor at the time was like, oh, well, she should do architecture. It's art and science together. And I think that was partly the reason why I chose it. The other influence was actually a mom on my soccer team. She went to school for architectural history, and there was this one uh, perfect timing, all, all at the same time this happened. There was a, what is it called? There was a tournament in Miami, and she was like, let's go downtown, and I'll tell you about all these buildings. We all thought it was horrible, horrible idea, but then I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Art Deco? This is architecture? There, there was a historical part that I really enjoyed about architecture. But then it was like, oh, I can do that. I can draw that. I can make that myself. So yeah, I guess that's how I came to architecture. How was Kent's architecture school? I think it's a lot different now than when I went there. I think they're much more technological focused then when I went there it was very clicky that's that's actually what I remember about it is that I didn't have any friends and until my very last year the program always felt difficult for me or that I wasn't getting it I wasn't figuring it out doing it right but there were a handful of professors that were definitely advocates more so than grad school and then of course there was the faculty that didn't care. <laughs> I don't want to say that it was average, but when you talk to other, especially Black women, it's the same story over and over again of feeling excluded and persevering, <laughs> surviving it. And so, of course, you find that other one student that's three years younger than you. I don't want to dismiss it and say that it was just like everyone else's. It was difficult. It definitely was. But I think that going through that experience and realizing that others went through it as well and are still going through it and fo- finding solidarity in that. And that probably pushes me to do a lot of the things that I'm doing now makes it worth it. So what made you go to grad school? You had that horrible <laughs> experience and then you're going to go to another PWI. I think the location definitely helps New Orleans. I mean, you can't be going to school in New Orleans. But everyone tells you, and I don't know how it is in other industries, but I feel like for architecture especially, there's this path, there's this set path, path to licensure. And these are the steps to do it. You can't do it any other way or else you're not going to do it. I was always told this is how you do it. And because of our education system at large, we aren't taught to challenge I honestly didn't think that there was an option to not go to grad school. If I wanted to be an architect, and funny enough, at Kent, our very first seminar, they told us, there's only one plan. There's only plan A, no plan B. (laughs) You do this and you see it through. And honestly, that really did stick with me. I had this path that that I was told and I was going to do it. I was going to prove all the people in high school that told me I couldn't do it, that I could. Tulane was rough. Tulane was rough. The one defining story I have 
is one day after a desperate that honestly I didn't think went bad but the person next to me or behind me was she always talked to you like that yeah she does does she not talk to you like that and they were like no you don't realize that you're being treated differently until someone tells you but school is isolating and I was not aware that this wasn't just how it was that I didn't have to take that type of treatment Tulane was rough and I think and I was only there for two years (laughs) my second year I was the student government grad whatever program president which you would think is the prestigious title or I would have some sort of privilege among faculty and students but it was not that at all I think that being in that position made me even more aware of how unequal I was or how I was perceived that that power dynamic between faculty as a president I was supposed to go to all the different faculty meetings and I shared that with one of my professors I said hey I'm gonna have to miss some of this class in order to go to the meetings and he was like they don't need you there you can't go used to be in my class. Okay, how do you how do you fight that? I chose not to and I was told not to by my peers unfortunately. Said, you know, it's not it's not worth the heartache. And looking back, although my experience was difficult, I wish that I fought more for myself. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you find your voice? Hmm. I think I'm still finding my voice. I think that after I graduated, that was 2019, I still had a handful of friends that were graduating the next year. And one of my good friends, Chanel, she, at the end of her year, she actually wrote a open letter to administrators and she detailed her experience and feeling discriminated against because of her race. I was really inspired by her being so vulnerable and sharing that with the world. Unfortunately, she was dismissed, which is not anything new, but it felt- What do you mean by dismissed? Do you mean she left? They told her she couldn't come back or they just didn't listen to what she said? There was no response. So the response was, okay, let's have an investigation, which I didn't think was warranted. It was an opportunity to have a conversation about how Black and Brown students feel about their education, about their experience, and it was not taken well. Yeah, it, it, it pissed me off. And I think that when things happen to yourself, it's like, okay, that's it happens, whatever. But then when you see it happen to someone else, it lights a fire under you. At least I've always been that way. Really protective of other people and advocating for other people comes easier than advocating for yourself. Through that, through her experience and me trying to support her, I think that's when I started to find my voice. And you're still doing architecture. I am. I'm studying architecture. I work for a firm in Kansas City that I would say is average. I mean, we have we have our challenges. We're a corporate firm. But I think when you 
feel like you have agency, it doesn't matter where you work. I think that I have found my voice enough. And also I will say the people that I work with try to support me in voicing different opinions and bringing things up that I actually believe more in architecture now, weirdly enough. I'm not jaded yet. (laughs) Hopefully I won't be. But I do think that practicing is so much different than education. Upsetting, actually. But practicing has definitely kept me engaged in a way that school never did. I was always ready to be done. (laughs) Done with school. Because your experience since school is struggle, struggle, struggle. I just need to get this very expensive paper and then start my life right? Yeah, that's how it felt. Certainly. I don't know who told me this, but some sometime at the beginning, someone told me work is a marathon, not a sprint. There's always going to be work. So, and, and school is the exact opposite. Always feels like a sprint. Always. Yeah. I, I think that working in the environment that I'm in now and feeling like I have more liberty has made me want to, weirdly enough, has made me want to get into academia and change that space. Did you have a mentor? It didn't sound like it. (laughs) You know, when I was in, when I was at Kent, I met my first Black architect. She probably wasn't an architect at the time. She was a NOMA member. And I asked her, I asked her, would you be my mentor? And she said, no. She said, no, I don't think I can be anyone's mentor. And I was just like, okay. They tell you to have, they tell you mentorship is so important and like you need a mentor, but then they don't tell you how to do that, I guess. I think that people are really scared of the word mentor. I know I am. I'm terrified at it. And I realized when I, I was in this program and I'm so sorry for, I won't say your name. I'm so sorry. I was a horrible mentor to you. I truly apologize. It was a mentorship program that I agreed to do. And my mentee was a rock star. And I was like, why do you need me? You don't need me. She was doing everything. She was focused. She had her life planned out. And then I'm like, you don't need me. And because I felt that way, I kind of just disappeared. But she didn't really reach out to me either. I would text her and then a couple of days later, oh, hey, you know, and not not to put any blame on her. In my mind, again, I felt like she didn't need me. But, no. you know, either is either that or it was like this beautiful facade that she had that mm-hmm. made it look mm-hmm. like she was everything, but she could have been struggling. I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing with that, if it was the second one, there's layers to that because it's trust issues. There's like, I need to show everybody yeah. I'm great. I'm not saying that you are, if you are listening to this podcast, because we did not have any <laughs> type of conversation with that, but I felt like I was a bad mentor. But when it, people come to me, like you came to me, it's like, Melissa, can you be my mentor? And I was like, oh, boy, yes, baby. <laughs> it becomes a two-way street so it's yeah. like or how you doing and then we would just talk we could talk about architecture or not and anything you need for me do you need me to curse out some teachers do you need <laughs> for me to to travel down or up or across what do you need me to do you have to yeah you know, the person has to want to be 
with you. So I, I have no idea who this person is or their mind space or why would this person say, and it could be a blessing because that person could have been going through a hell of a lot more issues than you have. So the way that I think of mentorship now, like you said, is a two-way street and they tend to be my peer group, like Chris or the people I went to grad school with. I lean on those people for advice. And I think that's a more informal and laid back way of thinking about mentorship is like your advisor, like someone that you're the group of people that you lean on. I think if I were to say like a formal mentor maybe maybe the guy that hired me but I feel like that's not we we just have so much weight on the word mentor that I don't know anymore like maybe the guy that hired me we have lunch every other month every quarter I think that he would be my what do they call them I heard there's a difference between a mentor and a sponsor my sponsor and not my mentor yes because after you leave your job would the connections be the same yeah so that's the difference between a sponsor and a mentor a mentor could be any it could be hey your dog could be your mentor just they're listening not to diminish the word it's like someone who is constantly in your life versus someone who goal is to see you succeed within the firm like I said 10 years from now, when you're not working there, will this person still call you up and say, hey, let's do lunch? You can't tell now until after you're gone, right? Just have them write you Did down. you have a mentor? I got a gazillion of them. <laughs> I do. All ages, shapes, sizes. And you end up seeing their value in different ways. Mm-hmm. Some mentors, I'm not going to call and cry about. Cry to. Mm-hmm. Some of them are financial. Some of them are younger than me some of them are older than me some of them are the same age as me some have eight kids some have no kids some married some single some freelancing and happy with the world it's some of them are architecture some of them are planning some of them are it's like you could in the architectural world and this in life in general if you want to get that business going you're going to find somebody in that business i got a podcast mentor to teach me all these things so i shouldn't say mentor but they don't listen to my stuff. So it's fine. But yeah. So do you have any black mentors, black female mentors? That's not of your same age. Cause if you don't, I could find you some. Yeah. I think, I think I could confidently say one and maybe after this, I should talk to her, but I would also qualify, qualify her as a friend, honestly. And we're not in the same age group and she is a licensed architect. So she's definitely has more experience than I do. And only recently, I don't know, I was complaining about something, complaining, complaining. And she was like, oh, let's get coffee and let's set some goals. And I was just like, oh, are you sure? Later that day, she had came up to me and she was like, yeah, do you want to get coffee? And you want to you go do what we said? And I was like, right now? Like, you wanted to do that today? Or we can schedule another day. And she was just like, no, why, why wouldn't we do it right now? And I was like, Oh, okay. So I guess, yeah, I would say that she's a mentor, someone that is looking out for you when you don't even realize it, or you don't even think that you're deserving. Oh, that sounds, yeah. Yes, I have a mentor. Okay, great. All right. I could talk to you forever, Michelle, but Chris is here. So (laughs) I'm going to involve him in this conversation now. So how did you two meet? 
I want to hear Chris' side. Like, so how how did you oh, meet? Okay, I know it was through Kelly. Kelly, Michelle's current partner, was I would say an acquaintance when we were in school together, and has since become a friend. But uh, we overlapped at Tulane for a year. And Michelle, did you go to that thing at Dillard that one day? It was like I yes, did. That was, that was the time we met, and he was just that white guy that was with the black girl. Yes, I was with my friend. Black. At a department store. No, Dillard University is okay. black uh, university here in New Orleans. I think it was Issa Rae was speaking at yep. the chapel, but it was like way over capacity. And I didn't really even know who she was, but my friend wanted to go. She was like, you should come. It's going to be cool. And we didn't get in. I don't think y'all got it either, but we ended up meeting and talking. And like, I saw Kelly. I was like, hey, and were y'all dating at the time? Or I'm just like post- justifying he was like this, you were not he was just like this is my friend Michelle was he there I guess he had to have been there otherwise I, I wouldn't have talked to you because yeah. I wouldn't have known That's- but yeah and then I think the way that we continued meeting was through Noma because I had just graduated the semester before and we were kind of like restarting the Noma Louisiana professional chapter we being myself Brian Bradshaw who's another New Orleans architect who had graduated in my class. I think he was friends with Kelly already because they'd been in school in Nomus together. And Brian had just restarted the Nomus chapter along with a couple other people at Tulane. And so I would come up to campus every once in a while. I remember just like talking with Kelly about his thesis. That was it. We just have long, endless conversations about thesis stuff. And maybe not the first one, but eventually... I remember it was the three of us and we would all have really great conversations. But yeah, that's that's what I remember. So how did Edge come about? It was part of one of those wonderful conversations and Edge stands for what now? Emergent grounds for design education. Yeah. I I would say partly yes. It 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 came about from our conversations, the and other conversations with other friends. Chris and I began having weekly conversations in March 2020. I think pre-pandemic, technically, maybe like the week before. Yeah, I had gone to my first architecture education conference in Norman, Oklahoma, like the week before the pandemic lockdown started. And since I was up around those parts, I was like, hey, Michelle, can I come stay with you in Kansas City for a couple of days? And it was a wonderful time. And I think there was a little bit of dread in the air about like this thing. It's like on a cruise ship in Seattle or something, but it was great. I think you had this copy of this book afterward. Like I left it at your house or something, right? And what are you pointing to? This is Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds by Adrienne Marie Brown. It's got a picture of birds on the cover. They are murmuring is that the is that the verb form of murmuration uh, they are flocking together in the same direction but without a specific leader yeah I think both of us by the beginning of 2019 had like gotten a bit involved in NOMA in different ways I've been pretty involved here in NOMA Louisiana's project pipeline and restarting the professional chapter and Michelle, in the case of being the student liaison, elected for a two-year term, right? 
mm-hmm. and being on the national board. And so, as well as like being involved in AIA stuff, I had six months in 2019 working for the AIA in New Orleans, which was, there were some decent people there, if you're listening, Joel and Aaron, love y'all. But it was a god-awful experience because most architects are just terrible people. I mean, most pe- most management of architecture practices, I would say, are terrible people. That's There's a very big difference between those two things. But the priorities of the kind of people who put themselves in the boards of a local AIA are not the same as, say, what mine were then or are now. So they fired me. And I think that disillusioned me quite a bit about what kind of change was possible through architecture organizations. I had been very frustrated about the idea of a great leader and the model of one individual great leader being the person who motivates social change and clearly seeing like that's not a sustainable model of change and seeking out other models of leadership. And so Adrian Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategy, talks a lot about a strategy that is networked individually leaderless because it's a bunch of strong leaders who work together in networks. And I think I had first come to learning thanks to a educator, former boss, mentor, I would say, of mine, Sue Mobley, about a civil rights organizer, a Black freedom organizer named Ella Baker, who worked in the early, mid, into the later 20th century, basically helping start up and train and spread leadership of many different freedom movement organizations, like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and others that are particularly well-known through the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. And Ella Baker wasn't someone who was necessarily in the front, partly because of her being a woman and a Black woman in a time when, as now, like media looked at great leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. Malcolm X, who were men and Black men. But thinking about how like I had come up as well in the space of Noma, which is, I think, very focused on like the leadership of men and black men. And as a white man with some of those people as my mentors and role models, I also was like, this type of leadership strategy in this space will not work for me anyway, for several reasons, beside that it's not the kind of leader I want to be. But I need a model of feminist leadership. And first learning about Ella Baker and then kind of getting into Adrian Marie Brown's more contemporary work sort of guided me into talking about things like murmurations, which is, I think, a really great concept, as well as being like a a natural concept. A lot of the metaphors that Brown uses are uh, natural, animal, uh, a kind of world that I hadn't been trained as an architect to think about as much, but I think it's really good to challenge the language we use and the way we view the world, even just metaphorically, through those kinds of models of leadership and thought. How did this book translate into both of you guys' experiences in architecture school? I think that that book made me realize, and a a lot of the work that I've been reading makes me realize that we all have the capacity to transform our living conditions. And we do that only collectively. You can't do that alone as an individual. And it's natural. It's a part of life. I would say that's what I came away with from reading it. Chris, what do you think? 
think I came away with a greater sensitivity toward feminist thought and particularly black feminist thought because I'd had some introduction to both through if you've listened to previous podcasts where Melissa asked me about all kind of fun things I talked a lot about a professor named Scott Ruff and how in his gender space and architecture class I first learned about bell hooks and some of her writing about architecture so I had some introductions like black feminist thought and psychology and modes of organization in life but I now know, because I've been going through training about it at work too, that one of the main things about the book that hits me is that it's talking about affective and emotionally centered ways of being rather than simply cognitive or intellectually focused ways of being. I think the most basic way that that comes through in our organizing is just like we spend a while, sometimes the whole meeting or almost all of it talking about how we're doing and what's happening in our lives. If something is really important that will take precedence over whatever it was we thought we were going to do, or if something else is really important and we just can't meet. This is something we've learned over time, by the way, because we have to unsocialize ourselves from the ways that racist capitalism trains us to think about urgency. And this has to be done now because we said it had to be, but sometimes we just don't meet because too much is going on and we need the week off. And I think learning how to do those things has been helped considerably by reading this book, particularly, and Bell Hooks as well. What would that look like physically? I feel like there's two architectural words. There's theory and then there's the built environment. How would you translate that into the built environment How, what would you build what would this building look like that design statement that would contribute to the facade of this or shape would yeah. it be a roof thing would it be a pitch would it be stairs would it be etcher you know upside down stairs thing what would that look like I think that for me not having a preconception of what that thing looks like what that thing is what 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 the form of it is and really focusing about the process the of getting form through. versus yeah. function right okay yeah I think everything that I've learned and how how we operate as an org or project whatever we call ourselves has really been about the process of how we communicate to one another and how we prioritize things. And this is something that I'm still struggling to figure out in how I practice. Whatever the thing is, it's gonna be whatever it is. But instead of me as an architect, as, as the expert saying that this is what it is and this is what it should be, and I'm gonna tell you how it should be. I think getting away from that and really centering the people the user from the beginning also not in the middle or not as an afterthought has been the start of how I connect these things also remembering that you need to be flexible and nimble and okay with uncertainties and changing has also been a part of this integration of edge and practice I would see if I were to go a little bit more literally and say, well, what is it as a building? It's like a, a well-loved old house 
that's been neglected for some time. And the designers are coming together with other people to bring it back to not exactly how it used to be, but restore it for the uses of a new generation. But it's definitely not new construction. I think about that a lot here in New Orleans, where like there's so many vacant buildings that have had these lives before and they could have lives again under racist capitalism. What we're going to get is Airbnbs or rich people's mansions. But in a just world, these houses can also be restored to be places where everyday people's, poor people's, black people's lives can happen in a beautiful and healthy space. And I think of that metaphor of restoration too, and not creating new. Also, I think now would be a good time to say, particularly Emerging Grounds has been much more than just me and Michelle over time, Mm -hmm. that from the very beginning, our two-person reading group kind of united with other conversations that were happening at the beginning of the pandemic with Kelly and Mion, who are two other, Kelly mentioned was also a Tulane student with me and Michelle. And then Mion was a student at the University of Virginia who was connected with me and some other Tulane students around monument removal work in 2017. And then it's also grown to be like Kirsten and Brian and Maddie and DJ, Darian, and all kinds of other people who come to meet with us. So literally more people than I could ever remember. I think we did write it down at some point. And one question we had at the beginning was the name we proposed was uh, New Grounds for Design Education because we're trying to create something new. And I think we got into it enough to be like, oh, wait, we're not actually trying to create something new. We're trying to reawaken or bring back the spirit of older activism as well like previous generations of design students activism that informs and inspires us. And so that's kind of how I get to the restoration metaphor. You know, what you're saying actually reminds me, we wouldn't be a building at all. We, we would be a landscape. Mm. We, we, we always talk about, or we always come back to the image of the Mississippi River. If you look on our website, that graphic on the edge is actually- Yeah, I noticed that because it's always- changing yeah it's very dope but also it has some meaning behind it so like chris said emerging grounds building new grounds the river its historical changes it's always building upon itself and becoming new and it is dependent on the past and what has come before so like we like to think of the river as our movement building and our revolutionary change we're always building upon ourselves similar to a river or a landscape. So I guess we're not a building at all, even though- when, Oh, when I stop and think about it, I'm like, damn, that's a really powerful thing we chose as, a, as our symbol too. There is nothing more powerful than Mississippi River, especially being here in New Orleans at the end. It's a quarter mile wide and 200 feet deep. There's so much power in that, even if it doesn't strike you the way that a building might as like a, a powerful symbol, but yeah. I did an interview with Damar Matthews from Off Top Design. And one thing I loved about the interview was it made me realize the importance of art and how Black culture is an art. Because we were talking about the Black aesthetic and what does Black architecture look like. When you guys were talking, the first thing I thought about was art. And then you said landscape. And I was like, oh, wow, that's even better. Landscape always try to recapture itself 
if you just leave it alone. We can try to manicure it and create our own space, but nature always wins in the end. There will always be weeds growing. You cannot prevent that at all. You can scorch the ground and yet you'll see a little puffy dandelion spawn blowing out in the wind. So that's, I like that versus a building, it deteriorates. It's like what man has built, the landscape will take over because it's like, whatever, you know, but I like that. I like that. that. That prompted me to say that. You guys did some collaboration with some students. How was that? What was that project? Can you talk about that? We worked with designers, protests, students for academic organizing, which was a group of students. I believe they were all in school at the time and they probably are not anymore. It's crazy how time works. But they were the student kind of arm of DAP. And the way that collaboration came about, I think it was through Neon. And there was a panel discussion back in September, August of 2020 that looked at a group of student organizers who made demands and that group came together to really reflect on that experience. I think there was hundreds of people in this Zoom call. After that, I could be messing up my timeline completely, but I believe after that, we came together and we were like, we need to quantify what this is. We need to put out a survey to understand the experiences that we've had and the demands that we've asked for and really qualify the successes and the challenges. It was a really fun experience to just reflect on not only what my immediate peers have done and what I've done, but also what students across the nation have done. And that collaboration was a couple of months, I believe. So we met every week, every week or every other weekend to put together together this survey. And then after a couple months, we did some visualizations for it, some, some summaries. And what is it, a year later, two years later, we are trying to do it again, hopefully. I'm actually uh, looking at it here, reminded that it was primarily focused on students, but the qualitative interviewing work we've been doing as a part of EDGE's archiving too, we've talked to a much broader range of people than just current students as well. We have alums of many of the same programs where students participated in statement writing, administrators, faculty at different levels. And yeah, I think we've been through this whole experience of like not really doing something academic, doing something that is about academia, trying to keep it both qualitative and quantitative by like having long conversations with people, um, inviting people in to share space with us in our weekly meetings, mostly has kind of been how we've done it. and. They've been architects, designers, planners, almost always since the end of summer 2020, like people who we have a first or second degree connection with. And it's been really fun to look back over the vast number of people we've talked to and all the connections we made from that. I will say too, I 
remember if we mentioned this yet, but like the original root of the edge, as opposed to like the reading group that we were in was the reading group as it started was a couple of weeks after the murder of George Floyd, looking at how many student groups around the country were starting to write statements in response to the emails that their administration had sent out about, we think Black Lives Matter at our school. And the sense of rage and frustration and disillusionment, I can't put all those on all the students who are writing them, but that's certainly how I felt at schools saying that they believe these things when they so clearly didn't. Like that was almost happening at the same time, Tulane at least, them putting out emails saying that Black Lives Matter and discounting and gaslighting Chanel for speaking out about uh, abuses that she faced at the hands of professors. So then being able to relate that back, particularly around another book, Dr. Sharon Sutton's When Ivory Towers Were Black, a story about race and education in America's cities, I think is the subtitle, which has been out, I think, since 2018. It was sort of like a 50 years after 1968. Let's look back at the student uprising at Columbia and the generation of Black architecture and planning students who came in after that, how they changed curriculum, how curriculum changed them, and sort of what the long-term effect of that has been on design education. Having gone through the experience of 2018, when so many people in design, academia, and media were looking back at 1968 and the student protests and at Whitney Young's speech and saying like, well, where are we now? And the general sense of self-congratulation. And it's a combination of like self-congratulation and a, well, of course we have more work to do, but then like a total lack of commitment to actually doing any of that work. And then the summer of 2020 happens as if nothing had happened in 2018, as if nothing had happened in 2015, as if nothing had happened in 1968 or any of those. And so, yeah, coming to understand this all as cyclical has been really important. And to know that none of this is actually is both a source of some frustration, but I think more so a sense of great strength. What's the future like for Edge? I got smiles. The thing that we spend most of our time on is not currently on the website. <laughs> After, or Michelle, would you prefer to talk about archiving or the workshops? Okay, I'll do archive. After probably like November, December 2020, we recognized like, okay, everyone who's put out, actually no, it was like in January 2021, when the Andrews University School of Architecture put on a program called the Anti-Racist School of Architecture. Like the, the ripples of the statements and the things that were being organized in response to the statements continued into early 2021. And I guess it was in spring 2021 when we were recognizing, we learned about this thing called the link rot and the fact that, and digital decay, like this concept that, well, all these things are put on the internet and sooner or later, someone's going to stop paying a subscription to Squarespace or Cargo, or they're going to like change their Gmail. And then all the Google Docs and websites on which this incredible articulation by students of what a future for anti-racist design education could look will just disappear from the internet as if it never happened and won't be available to future student organizers in the same way that the materials that Dr. Sutton uses, which are archival in her book from 1968 would be. And so we were like, oh, well, we should archive this. And so over a couple of weeks, we printed PDFs of all of these websites and 
Google Docs and save them. And then we were, well, now what? Also social media posts, because we recognize that there were so many different ways that students organized. Sometimes it was through NOMA chapters. Sometimes it was through AIS. It was through existing groups of friends. And of course, then there's people who are not just in architecture, but in planning or landscape or forestry or all kinds of places who are doing this work. So recognizing that they didn't always get to the point of like writing a paper or writing like a manifesto. And also that like the way this was reported on, if you were to read about it in like architects newspaper, you would think that it happened at like Yale and Columbia and Michigan and maybe Berkeley. But if you were to look at the collection that we sort of compiled, you would see it was also happening at the University of Houston and at K-State and at Andrews University in Berrien Springs, Michigan. And even at other places that hadn't published anything or done an event, but had just made an Instagram post. Wanting to take the breadth of that and particularly look outside the traditional centers that are focused on in like the North and the coasts, Michelle being in the Midwest and me being here in the South, we wanted to sort of bias our archiving to correct for that usual misrepresentation. And so we collected all that and then we did some grant applications to figure out what to do with it. One of those led us to a university archivists collective called Project Stan that we've recently become part of and we're really excited for working with them over the coming years, hopefully, to figure out more about like what archiving practice is and how it's done equitably and particularly how digital archiving works as opposed to like the kind where you put everything in a box and give it to a university library because we want to ensure that things that students created are available to future generations of student activists. And of course, there's also questions that come up, like we don't own this material. How do we represent it? How do we represent our relationship to it? And those are the kind of things that as we start to be in community with actual archivists, they think about those things all the time. So that's been a really great project. I think the website maybe talks about that a little bit, but it does not at all talk about the other thing, which Michelle will talk about. Yeah, I think we also came to the realization that there are a lot of institutions and a lot of students that are having conversations about social change, but aren't provided the opportunity or space to do that or relate that to architecture and design and definitely their education. So we also have this second arm of edge that's nowhere on the website. We like to call it present tense archiving. It's really the indispensable work of creating spaces for students to have these conversations. It's bringing together the academic world and the professional world of practice. Over the past couple of months, we have been doing workshops at different institutions, aptly called penitentiary philosophies to abolitionist not attitudes, alternatives. We look at different social topics. Now we're looking at housing before we're looking at prison abolition and really integrating that into the conversation of how we practice and how do we teach how to practice. Archiving, doing that analytical work is definitely important, but also 
for us if you're not actually also doing the work. Like you need to do both, I guess is what I'm getting at. When you guys were talking about archiving, you first thing that came to mind was like Library of Congress. Have you guys looked into that? No. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Library of Congress and the Smithsonian. I have uh I'm just throwing it out there. That's all I'm doing. I've been fortunate enough to be in the same room as Michelle Joan Wilkinson one time and was definitely really mm. and am really inspired by what she does. Archiving black architecture design histories at the Smithsonian. I think what we've been it's fascinating too, like what Michelle and I were talking about this yesterday, how what we've been doing in Edge is also like spun back into what we do in Noma and all kinds of other places too. But like for me in Noma, Louisiana specifically, it's given me, this has also been because of the, the passing of a previous leader of Noma, Louisiana, Mr. Lonnie Hewitt, back at the beginning of 2021. But the necessity of archiving for that reason too, because we need to be able to tell the stories of the generations that came before us, if we can understand what we're doing here in the present and what we're going to do in the future and the continuities and the differences between them. And so in my role as Noma, Louisiana's communications coordinator, been focusing a lot more on archiving for our chapter and organization too, which is kind of spun into this exhibit and public program series that my colleague, Professor Kwong and I are doing. If you're listening sometime in the spring of 2021, it'll be ongoing. We were going to do it in person, but now we probably won't. So check out Noma, Louisiana's Instagram, and you can see more about Ascent, Elevating Southern Perspectives on Design Justice. Any last words? I think I'd add on the penitentiary philosophies to abolitionist alternatives workshop. That's been a really fun effort because it's given us the opportunity to collaborate deeply and broadly with people in other organizations, particularly NOMA Mm -hmm. chapters and the architecture lobby nationally in chapters. And yeah, maybe a good tie in, not that it'll matter to people listening to this, but there's an event happening right now in January about unionization that I think I'm going to dip into after we head out from this. People may have seen in December 2021 about architects at shop in New York City starting the process of forming a union there. And it's been fascinating to be kind of sitting partly within the architectural lobby and partly within NOMA and also to have this space here in Emerging Grounds to think about like what is the intersection of race and labor, but not just in like a intellectual Marxist way in like a really emotional and human way too. We can talk about exploitation and we should, but we should also just talk about the way that shitty offices make us feel and the ways that we shape our student and not just offices, but schools too. The ways that the labor of equity, diversity and inclusion work is often uncompensated and more or less stolen from students by schools. So much like Hundreds of thousands of hours of labor went into writing all of these uh, listed demands and calls to action over 2020 and 2021. And as a labor movement grows in architecture, it's always reminds me that that was a whole bunch of uncompensated labor and unionization and other labor strategies are important so that we can do equity work and not for free because it's got to be done and it's worth something. Join us. Contact us. Our email is emergentgrounds.edu at gmail.com. We love talking <laughs> and we talk weekly. Opportunities to connect. Yeah, I think that's that's my plug. I am copying the email. 
in the show notes as we speak. So check it out. All right, guys. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. This was not as nerve wracking as I thought it would be. I am so happy you said that. Thanks a lot, Melissa. Michelle, it's always great to talk to you, but then it's like a whole nother thing. Listening to you talk to someone else about things that I don't know as much about, I learned a lot. Melissa, you're really great at asking questions. So I learned both about your life, Michelle, and then how to ask some better questions. And I really appreciate the time we spent together for all that. That's a heart emoji right there. All right, guys. Thank you. Listeners, I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating the show and it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week. But it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I want to keep the show going and I want to invest in its growth. And I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash archispolly, A-R-C-H-I-S-P-O-L-L-Y, or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash archespolly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today.